Hello and welcome to the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. I'm your host, Joe Webb, and this is a podcast for all of us who are looking for faith beyond the fences. Thank you so much for listening. This is episode 11 of the podcast, and it's part three of our series titled Deconstructing Lent, where we're looking at the idea of spiritual deconstruction through the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount, which is found in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 of the New Testament. Uh, And we're doing this during this season of Lent that leads us up to Easter. So just off the bat here, um, a lot of pretty bizarre things have happened in the world since our last episode of the podcast. And so if you're um, if you're listening more or less as each episode is released, then you will know that two weeks ago for our last episode, we were barely even thinking or talking about coronavirus or COVID-19. And now today I'm recording this podcast on March 19th, 2020, and our lives have been pretty much completely upended um, here over the last um, week or 10 days or so. Uh, and so before we get started into the main part of the podcast, um, I just really want to encourage you to do whatever you can to to take care of yourself and to take care of your loved ones and your neighbors. And, and if you're from the future and you're listening to this, you know, much later, um, I hope that whatever our new normal looks like is is kinder and more compassionate and more merciful because of of what we've all gone through. Um, and so we're going to move on ahead with this series, Deconstructing Lent. And again, this is um, part three of this series. So in the first two episodes of this series, um, going back to episode nine of the podcast, um, we, we've basically kind of walked through what I call the prologue to the Sermon on the Mount, which begins at the end of Matthew chapter 4, and then we finished our last episode at the end of Matthew chapter 5. And so up to this point in in this monologue of Jesus's, he has basically been going deep into the deconstruction process for his first century Jewish audience. This whole, you know, you have heard it said, but I say to you, group of passages that we talked about last time is really kind of deconstruction 101. It's Jesus saying, I understand why you believe what you believe, but there is a better way. You just have to lean in a little more. You need to go a little deeper. You need to see what motivations and attitudes lie behind your actions. And again, This all goes back to that key statement that we talked about in the first part of this series from Matthew 4, where Jesus begins his public ministry with the words, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. Now, I don't want to spend too much time looking in the rearview mirror here. So if you haven't listened to this, that first part of this series, I would invite you to go do that to get a little clearer understanding of what I'm talking about. But as I said in that episode, which again was episode nine of the podcast, that statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, is really the key to understanding Jesus's agenda in what we refer to now as the Sermon on the Mount. Or maybe maybe to be more accurate, it is the key to understanding the writer of the Gospel of Matthew's agenda, 
uh, maybe than Jesus's specifically, but that, that might just be a little bit of theological hair splitting. We're not going to dive down that rabbit hole right now, but at any rate, I think it's important that we grasp that statement, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, because I think it's so often been misused by maybe more evangelical traditions as a way of scolding people into more or less shaping up before they can be found acceptable. So to repeat what I said earlier, that idea of repenting in this context had far less to do with apologizing for individual wrongdoings than it did with both a personal and a corporate reorientation from one way of thinking and one way of being into a completely different way. It's it's Jesus's way of saying, basically, if you want to experience life the way it was intended, you need to let go of your self-centered way of thinking, and you need to adapt to a new way. And that new way for Jesus was centered on kind of this principle of placing the well-being of others above oneself. So there's this radical reorientation that Jesus is calling his first followers to, a new way of thinking and a new way of being. But but to get them there, he has to break down the old way for them. And that's what the first chapter of the Sermon on the Mount, which would be Matthew chapter 5, is really all about. It's about breaking down old paradigms. So at the end of Matthew 5, where we left off um, in, in the last episode, Jesus has just finished that whole, you have heard it said, but I say to you section, which again was a very typical rabbinic way of teaching with this line that says, be perfect, therefore, as God is perfect. Actually, most translations would say, as your heavenly father is perfect, but I'm really trying to steer away uh, from that sort of gender-specific language for the purposes of, of this podcast. And so we ended that last episode by saying how that line, be perfect, therefore, as God is perfect, might be better translated as something more like, allow God to make you more mature or complete or whole. And how maybe that was an invitation away from uh, what we might call a transactional sort of view of humanity's relationship with the divine and more of a transformational or transcendent view. So this is where we pick up with Matthew chapter 6, which we are um, basically going to unpack in this episode, because this is where Jesus is going to begin to transition his audience from deconstruction toward reconstruction. And he's going to do that by transitioning them from these kinds of conceptual things that he's been talking about in chapter 5 and moving toward how they can start to implement these new paradigms in the context of some really particular actions, specifically in terms of some of their primary religious practices, the practices of of giving or generosity, of prayer, and of fasting. And I think he picks those practices particularly 
because those were the the kind of public practices that the Pharisees, who we mentioned last time were sort of the self-appointed gatekeepers of morality, um, did in ways that made sure that people knew what they were doing. They were practices that allowed the people who saw themselves as the most righteous or the most pious in the community to draw attention to themselves and therefore to draw attention to their agenda of cleansing Israel of her moral impurities so that God would intervene on their behalf against the occupation of the Roman Empire in the first century. Now, it's important to notice in this section of the sermon at the beginning of Matthew 6 that Jesus is not at all saying that these practices should cease. Again, he's getting at motivations. And what he's saying is that if you're motivated by love and concern for others more than for yourself, these practices should flow from you as naturally as you're moving or you're breathing. So there's this line where Jesus tells his audience that when they give to the poor, they shouldn't let their left hand know what their right hand is doing. And that's just a way of saying that if you're living the kind of life that Jesus is referring to, generosity should come so naturally to you that you do it without even noticing it. And so he builds off of that, you have heard it said, but I say to you, deconstruction language about motivations that we find at the end of Matthew 5 by saying, in essence, you have seen your religious leaders making a big show out of their piousness. But that just shows that their motivations are selfish. And to go back to something we said in an earlier episode, it goes to show that their righteousness is only self-righteousness. And he goes on to say that if that's what their motivation is, then that's the reward they're going to get. They may be pretending to seek recognition from God for their actions, but it's really the recognition of others that they're after. And Jesus basically just says, fine, just that's okay. Let them have that. If that's what they want, let them have that. But don't presume that that really means anything about how pious or righteous they really are. So he doesn't tell the people to stop doing those things, to, to cease those practices, because those practices clearly have value. But he does tell them to change the way they do it, the reasons they do it. And so he says to do these things in secret. Now, let me be clear about something. Jesus isn't trying to set up a new set of rules and regulations to follow that are even more difficult than the law that he's been deconstructing. He's not saying that public acts of prayer or generosity are wrong, and he's not saying that you have to be prideful about your humility. In other words, to kind of make a big deal about your anonymity. Again, that just reveals an ultimately selfish incentive. But, but again, like we were saying before, it's about attitudes and motivation. In other words, even if those acts are done in public, and that's fine that they're done in public, our attitude toward them should be that we're doing them as if no one else would ever know about them. They should just flow, they should flow naturally from our relationship with the divine and with this new way of being 
that Jesus is advocating. Now, this is where we need to look back again for a minute at that statement from the prologue in Matthew 4, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, because what Jesus is talking about in all of this is what the kingdom of heaven really is. So we've talked about what he means by repentance as a radical reorientation. So what does he mean by the kingdom of heaven? We talked about this a little bit in the first episode, and The kingdom of heaven for Jesus is not, as most folks in that time would have assumed, the restoration of Israel to the autonomy and status they had when King David was on the throne, for instance. And it's not, as many modern Christians might presume, some post-mortem destination for our disembodied souls if we hold the correct propositional beliefs. For Jesus, the kingdom of heaven is more a way of being in the world that's in line with what we might call the original created order. Now, I want to be really careful here because I know that phrase, created order, is one that can carry a lot of baggage and even some harm for some people who have had it used against them. But to go back to something that we talked about earlier in the series— what that would have meant for Jesus would not have been some sort of dogmatic or doctrinal stance about family systems or dominion over nature, but simply this idea of living together with one another, with the earth, and by extension with the universe in in harmony and in peace. Mutual respect Dignity and love are what are really at the heart of the created order. And so, just to make a point here, if anyone's ever told you that you need to, quote, repent of your sinful ways in order to gain God's favor, frankly, that's that's just a load of crap. You already have God's favor. What Jesus is talking about in this whole passage that we call the Sermon on the Mount is that when we radically reorient ourselves toward love, dignity, respect, and harmony, a new way of existing in the world emerges. And so repentance, again, is not so much something that we do to gain God's favor as it is something that happens in us as a result of our recognition that we're already deeply in God's favor. And then beginning to live as if we actually believe that that's true. And when we live that way, when we live in that kind of harmony with each other and with the divine, however we define that, whatever name we give to it, we would, as Richard Rohr says, we would move away from a transactional faith where we get something from God in return for something we do. And and we move towards a transformational faith where we allow God's way of love and compassion and justice to shape our actions. In other words, to, to return to the language of the Sermon on the Mount, it's how we are being made to be perfect or mature or complete or whole. It's how we experience the presence of divinity. It's how we experience transcendence. 
At Accidental Tomatoes, we're building a community of people looking for ways to find faith and spirituality beyond the walls and fences of the traditional church. While our blog and our podcast are always absolutely free, if you'd like to go deeper with more resources and conversations, we invite you to support us through the Patreon platform. For as little as $2 a month, you can receive bonus content, including a monthly newsletter, patrons-only commentary, and much, much more. Just go to patreon.com slash accidentaltomatoes to learn how. And now, back to the podcast. Now, before we move ahead, I want to take a minute and talk about one particular subsection of this part of the Sermon on the Mount, because it's one that has taken a pretty central place in Christian worship patterns, and that's the the part in Matthew chapter 6, verses 9 through 13, that we have come to call the Lord's Prayer. Now, I suspect for most people who have spent much time in or around church world, this particular prayer may have been one of the first things that you ever memorized. And to be honest, it's probably just one of those things that you have repeated week after week after week without ever giving much thought to it. In fact, honestly, if you're like me, it's one of those things that's so familiar that the words can come out of your mouth while your mind is on something else entirely. Or, if you came into the church from a non-religious background, it may have been one of those things that left you feeling like kind of an outsider because everyone else seemed to know it, to know what it meant, and to know why they were saying it. And they never really give you much of a clue about that. And what I think we've lost by just making it a routine part of our rituals is the way that Jesus designs that prayer as a tool to help us with this radical reorientation toward this kingdom of heaven way of being that he's advocating for. And the reason for that is that rather than our typical way of praying where we're asking God to do something specifically for us as individuals or on our behalf, this prayer is meant to reorient us toward what, for Jesus anyhow, is God's way of thinking about the world, of seeing things as they are meant to be. And so while many of us in our hyper-individualized way of thinking might see the part of that prayer that says, give us each day our daily bread as sort of the central theme of the prayer, right? To ask God to provide for us. For Jesus, the focus of the prayer is on the line that says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And if that becomes the central focus of our prayer, then all of the other parts of that prayer, sustenance, forgiveness, protection from temptations and evil, those things all become ways that that concept of God's will on earth as it is in heaven become the ways that that concept plays out, right? When when we're living the way that life was intended to be, then those things simply begin to come to us more naturally. Now, one more thing about that section, and it's what comes immediately after what we call the Lord's Prayer in verses 14 and 15. 
And it's these, these lines that say, depending on which translation you're reading, something along the lines that if you forgive others, God will forgive you. And if you don't forgive others, God won't forgive you. Again, I think that's a line that's been weaponized way too often as sort of a behavior management tool, as a way of shaming people into this idea that they have to do something, in this case, forgive someone who has wronged you, in order to receive God's favor. So there there are two things that I want to say about that. First, to tell someone, especially if it's somebody like a victim of any kind of violence, uh, whether it be physical or emotional or even spiritual violence, that they have to forgive their abuser or abusers before God will love them is in itself a form of spiritual abuse. But what I do think Jesus is getting at here is that real authentic love, which again is sort of the meta-narrative of this whole thing, real and authentic love is most fully expressed through the act of forgiveness. That's what Jesus was hinting at in chapter 5 with that line about loving our enemies. But again, forgiveness should be seen as a response to God's love, not as a condition for receiving it. So the second thing that I would say about that statement is that I think maybe a better way of understanding it would be to say that we only fully experience God's forgiving love when we extend forgiveness to others. Now, forgiveness is hard work, right? And I think we sometimes, we're, we're just a little too glib with the way we throw that idea around that we should forgive other people. I heard um, this sermon that Rob Bell gave years ago um, where he said something along the lines that, um, that real forgiveness doesn't mean letting someone off the hook for something they've done to hurt you or harm you. Real forgiveness is actively seeking the best for someone or actively seeking the well-being of someone even when they've done something to hurt you or harm you. Now, it does not mean pretending like the harm never happened, and it certainly does not mean opening yourself up to any continued harm. It simply means that you make the transition away from seeking hurt or harm for them in response, and instead seeking good for them. Now, that might look like just getting away from them so that they can't harm you any longer. That might be the most and the best you can do to simply remove yourself so that they can't continue in that pattern of behavior. That might be the best thing you can do to help them. But in some cases, it might mean actively helping them in some way. There, there are no blanket responses to this. There's no cookie-cutter way to look at it. But again, the point is that to forgive is really what it looks like to love completely. And sometimes that means doing the hard work of forgiveness. But that is what I think makes love much bigger than just simply an emotional transaction. But as Jesus is trying to teach his followers, an actual way of being that transcends emotional transactions, and seeks our common good. Now, that's that's a topic that probably deserves a lot more attention and focus than we can give it in this space here. But I want you to see how that statement about forgiveness fits into this bigger context of what we're talking about.
So, just to keep moving forward, Jesus' next statements both build on what he's just said about not valuing the recognition of others, and they also go back to something I said earlier about his call to repentance being both individual and corporate. Again, because we live in probably the most hyper-individualistic society that history has ever seen, we tend to view Jesus' sayings, and, and the Bible as a whole for that matter, as personal instructions for how we as individuals are expected to behave. And a lot of that is honestly because some of the vagaries of translating ancient Hebrew and Greek languages into modern English. You see, whenever, or at least most of the time, whenever Jesus says the word you in these passages, the word from the original languages is plural, not singular. Now, in English, we use that the same word for both the singular and plural forms, and then we infer which one is which from the content. So, so what Jesus means by the word you in these statements is not to say, like, specifically you as targeted to an individual, or even more broadly to say, you know, to a group of individuals, you know, you should, you should each do this, right? But it's, it's, to ev- it's directed to everyone collectively as a set or as a community or a society or, or even as a nation. It's, it's a corporate you all, or, or in my Appalachian dialect, it would be y'all, right? And it's directed not just to those individual people gathered on that Galilean hillside, but to the societal, religious, cultural, political, military, economic, institutional, etc., etc., systems and structures that govern our actions and our interactions. And so Jesus moves from the topic of these particular public religious practices and how they should be conducted in light of a loving relationship with the divine and puts them now in the light of some of the larger systemic structures in which they exist. So he goes on to say, first of all, that you should store up treasures in heaven rather than treasures on earth because, and and to to quote, you know, a, a popular translation, where your treasure is, your heart will be there also, right? And then a few lines later, he says, this line, no one can serve two masters. You cannot serve both wealth or or money in some versions and God. And in almost every single sermon I've heard preached on that particular passage, it's it's been used to try to encourage you to give money to the church. Now, I am not saying that people shouldn't give money to their churches. I'm not saying that at all. But I am saying that very, very often this particular line from the Sermon on the Mount has been taken completely out of context to coerce financial giving. When Jesus refers to treasures in heaven, he's not talking about some kind of 
cosmic bank account that gets built up by our good deeds or our financial investment. Rather, at least in my opinion, based on the rest of the context of the sermon, he's talking about aligning oneself with the ways of God, with the ways of Yahweh as the Hebrew people knew God, which he has been describing up to this point. Likewise, then, treasures on earth are not the tithes that we would withhold or the money that we keep in our pockets. It's those human systems and structures that oppress and marginalize others. Those things that create power and privilege and prestige for some at the expense of someone else. Now, certainly in our modern context, and probably even to an extent in Jesus's context, Financial wealth would have been a part of that critique, but so would abuse of political and economic power or unchecked use of military violence or even things like, you know, shaming culture and and that kind of thing. And I think the key to understanding all of that is hidden in this little and very often overlooked line that falls between these thoughts about treasures and wealth and here and here's what that that line says the eye is the lamp of the body therefore if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light but if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness if then the light in you is darkness how terrible that darkness will be again None of this has anything to do with the eternal disposition of our immortal souls after we die, even though a lot of preachers have basically used it to say that if you don't tithe, you're going to end up in hell. We we have to remember the larger context, right? Jesus is talking this whole time about attitudes and motivations, about how we see the world, specifically how we see and think about and treat other people. And so if we see the world as being basically our own personal playgrounds where we can do whatever we like to other people and to the planet as long as it advances our agendas of power and influence and privilege, we're basically living a lie, Jesus says. We're living counter to our basic nature of being created in the image of a God who is love itself. But if we see the world the way Jesus sees it, we see what what the writer of the Gospel of John might say. We see the light of truth. We see that there is indeed a better way of being in the world. If we support systems and structures that dehumanize, we're missing the point. It's like living in the dark where we can't really see what's real, right? But when we start to break down those systems and replace them with ones that fully respect and support the dignity and the humanity of all people, what we might call the common good, we begin to live in the light of a greater reality than the one that we've shaped around our purely selfish pursuits. So when we store our treasures in heaven, to to quote 
the, the language here. And when our eyes are good, right, to see things as they are meant to be, we see that all the things that we worry and fret about no longer have any power over us. Our self-centered agendas become empty pursuits. And so at the end of Matthew 6, in what really I think might be the climactic point of the entire sermon, Jesus completes this transition from deconstruction to reconstruction. And basically he says, why do you worry? All of these things that you pour so much of your energy into worrying about just simply are not worth it because they're missing the point. And so he encourages his audience to consider the natural world and the way things work when they're left to their original design. Birds and flowers don't worry. They don't compare themselves to other birds and flowers. They just are what they were meant to be. And they're beautiful. And Jesus says, that's how it can be for you too. If you let go of your other agendas and live in relationship to this way of love and dignity and justice and compassion. And then he ends this this particular bit of the monologue with, with these words. He says, Instead, desire first and foremost God's kingdom and God's righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Again, this is not some pronouncement for what happens to us after we die. Remember how earlier in the sermon, Jesus critiqued the righteousness of the Pharisees as being nothing but empty self-righteousness? Now he's bringing this argument full circle. He's saying, don't worry about seeming righteous to those who are self-righteous, and that's all they are, right? Because God's righteousness is a whole different thing. You are loved and valued just as you are. You do not need to impress God. So clear out the clutter, take an honest look at your motivations, and simply be who you are made to be. The, the transformation, right, the, the, the sort of kingdom life that Jesus is talking about isn't about becoming someone more pious and more outwardly religious. It's really about becoming yourself, about becoming your true self. And how that gets lived out will be the topic of the final segment of our Deconstructing Lent series in episode 12 of the podcast. And and so that's it for this episode. That's That wraps up episode 11 of the Accidental Tomatoes podcast. Um, thanks again for listening and for um, engaging in this, in this conversation. You can find Accidental Tomatoes online at accidentaltomatoes.com and you can find us across the social media world. We are at Accidental Tomatoes. Please, um, I would just love uh, for you to to like and follow our Facebook and Twitter and Instagram pages. That's where you can get any up-to-the-minute updates of things that are going on in our community. And we've got some really interesting things planned going forward here um, in the next couple of months. You can, you can find me, Joe Webb, on my website, joewebrights.com, where I blog about a lot of these things that we talk about on the podcast. 
And you can reach out to me personally on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram at Joe Webb Writes. If, if you have any ideas or suggestions for, um, for future topics for the podcast, I would love to hear from you. So um, you can reach out to us again on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at accidentaltomatoes at gmail.com. Um, and one more favor I would ask, if you enjoy our podcast, please be sure to rate and review us on whatever uh, podcast player you use, whether that would be iTunes or Google Play or Podbean or wherever you listen to your podcast. That will help other people find us and connect with this community that we're building and to participate in the conversation. So please keep on growing outside the fences and join us next time for the Accidental Tomatoes podcast.